Welcome to the Iterative Podcast. Today we have Yolanda Lee, co-founder of Uncommon. Uncommon is a private leadership network for the next generation of female leaders in Asia. Uncommon provides a strong and uplifting network, a personalized development roadmap, tailored courses and workshops, and enriching speaker series, all in one membership. Talk about the road less traveled. At 20, Yolanda rented an abandoned industrial warehouse in her hometown of Toronto and got artists like Daft Punk and Major Lazer to play there by messaging them on MySpace. She went on to intern at the European Court for Human Rights, graduated top of her class at Oxford, and worked for Uber and Rocket Internet in Africa. We talk about what drove her to these different paths and how those experiences shaped her. Towards the end of our conversation, she opens up about her motivation for starting Uncommon, what her personal experience has been being in male-dominated industries, why Uncommon is so important, and what we, especially men, can do to help. It's an important conversation that I hope you stay and listen to. Here's my conversation with Yolanda Lee from Uncommon. Hi, Yolanda. Thanks for being on here today. Hi, thanks for having me, Sikan. Um, so I always like to start these with kind of like origin stories. Um, you know, it turns out not only superheroes have origin stories. Um, so maybe you could start with kind of where you grew up and where you were born. Cool. Um, yeah, so I am from Canada. I was born in the suburbs of Toronto um, in a place called Scarborough that has a pretty bad rep. But I remember it being like pretty boring and cookie cutter. Um, my parents... Bad rep in like what sense? Bad rep in like, it's kind of not, you know, not a nice part of town. It's like, I mean, there's nice parts of it and less nice parts of it, but it kind of has like, I guess it's, it's not like a posh part of Toronto by any means. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I guess it's a place where, um, a lot of like people who have come from, you know, there's actually a large like Caribbean community there. That's where uh, my parents were immigrants from Trinidad and Tobago, and and I think they had kind of their families had kind of settled in this area when they moved to Canada. Is, uh, do you know what the story is of like why people from the that part of the world ended up in that part of uh, Toronto? Yeah, I'm not necessarily in that part of Toronto, but I know that you know in the late '60s, early '70s, there was pretty much open immigration to Canada, but in that, I guess it's, it's sort of like one person moved there. It was cheaper than living central. And, and then it's like one person moves in like, Oh, I know a guy. And then, and then they I feel like kind all of immigrant communities, yeah. Yeah. like all immigrant communities. Like I got an uncle who moved to this place. Yeah. Years ago. yeah, exactly. And it's like, um, but then I had, so that's sort of where I was born. And then when I was, uh, about seven years old, I was accepted to um to a little private school in the city that I'd been on the wait list since I was like in the womb my mom was like very focused on giving us a really good education and when I got accepted uh, we moved to the city um so to downtown Toronto to an area called the annex which is a relatively um affluent area my parents bought like a fixer-upper uh home and we moved there and we were the first and to my knowledge, the last ethnic minority family uh, to buy a house there. Uh, my dad once got like arrested taking a barbecue from our house, which was at number 171 to our school at number 45 um, to a school function. So it was like a super, super like, like white neighborhood. <laughs> so I feel like, I mean, some people will probably watch this on the video and they will kind of like, 
could see they can infer what your ethnicity is. Um, but like, I guess for the like podcast listeners, like, do you want to just kind of like um, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I am uh, Trinidadian, but my my uh, so ethnically, my Trinidad is is a pretty uh, diverse place. So my family's like ethnic origins are Indian, Chinese, West African, and uh, and a little bit of Caucasian as well. So we're kind of a mixed bag. So what was it like when you kind of moved into that like all white neighborhood? Um, I guess it was more diverse where you were from. There's like more people like you. And then you moved into this like all white neighborhood. It's like nobody like you. Yeah, exactly. Um, to be honest, like I was always in like Montessori schools or my, my parents always had me in like other schools. So I was always like, for as long as I can remember, I don't think I necessarily always had the awareness, but I can always remember being like the only brown kid in, in the school. And, um, but moving into that neighborhood, um, I think when you're that young, like you're just so adaptive. Like I had moved schools quite a lot because my mom was like very uh, demanding of my educators. And so we would just, I think like for my early life, we would just kind of move schools um, super often. So I was like very adaptive. And I don't think I never, I realized it until I became a little bit older that, oh, I'm like actually the only person of color, of color here. So, and what kind of kid were you growing up? Um, so building upon, like, I was definitely super adaptive. Like I lived in this mm -hmm. kind of juxtap, I think a lot of like kids of immigrants, you kind of learn to code switch a lot. You learn like, okay, this is how I am with my family and going to like an all white school, you kind of like learn how to, to adapt in, in that way. So I definitely grew up as someone who could like kind of maneuver through a lot of different circles. But I did live in the, these, this world of kind of extremes. Like when I started at my middle school, like it was, I had a scholarship to go to like um, one of like the oldest, like most elite girl schools in Canada. And so you go to, so in a weird way, I was sort of like embedded in this like hmm. 1%, but like as definitely as an outsider, but kind of like this weird insider outsider. And then on the other, the flip side, I had like the perspective of like my extended family who like were you know, went through a lot of like tough times, had a difficult time making ends meet. But I had friends at school who would like fly to St. Bart's for like a long weekend and stuff. And so it was really this like juxtaposition and this like vast array of seeing kind of different ends of the, of the spectrum. So I was pretty adaptive and could move through a lot of circles. And I was super rebellious. I had a very strict uh, Trinidadian mother and I spent a lot of my time kind of like climbing out of windows, getting kicked out of the house, like moving in like to other places. So my, my adolescent years were actually pretty volatile, like being kind of out on my own, doing things, getting, getting kicked out for going to the movies and stuff like that. I, so I feel like your growing up sounds kind of like mine. I think my parents were not as strict, but I definitely was like super rebellious and like I snuck out and kind of like got chased by police and like all this kind of stuff. Um, were you like a really good student and then you hit your teenage years and then it was like rebellion and then like, is that kind of how it went? Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely like a, a kind of good girl. Like did, did all the, ticked all the boxes. Like I, there was such a big pressure on mm. education and I felt like the weight of everything my parents were kind of sacrificing for me. So Whilst I was rebellious, I still really understood education as like a tool for social mobility and that 
for in many ways, it felt like so much was being put into my education that I, whilst I was very uh, rebellious, I still needed to kind of, you know, pass and stuff. <laughs> Where do you think that rebellion like came from all of a sudden? Oh, that, I mean, I think it was just, you know, living in Canada and living, living around, like most of my friends didn't have parents as strict. And so I didn't, I was uh, comparing my life and the things that people could do, um, compared to, you know, what my parents would allow me to, to do. And, and so they had come from very strict backgrounds and to them, they were very lenient. They were like, <laughs> so, so, um, so I think it was just that comparison and seeing that and, and ultimately, you know, seeing that I wanted things to be different and, and that I would stand up for kind of the things I believed in, which was that I should be allowed to go to the club. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is jumping like way ahead, but do you think that that colored kind of like, do you kind of, do you find a strand of that kind of throughout your life? Like, do you think that was like something that was like just a phase and like, okay, like that, that really wasn't kind of you, or do you find that that kind of colored kind of your life going forward? I definitely see that as a strand, like not necessarily that I'm like, rebellious in the same way but that like when there's a fork in the road I have like a strong resilience to just doing something because it's what's expected like Mm. I will take that time to and I'll go I'll take I'll choose the the path that maybe isn't as easy that maybe isn't as expected but like that I that I really believe in and I and as as difficult and as challenging and as like scary as that sometimes can be yeah, I mean, I feel like I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I feel like your life has a lot of these kind of like choices that <laughs> yeah. you made that like back up what you just said. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So I think we're going to get into a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, what was your first job? Um, I I had my first like unofficial job. So yeah. I've always sort of been working from as long as I can remember. Like working was a very important kind of core value for my, my family. But I also felt from like a, a young age, like, the freedom that can come with like earning money. And so, Mm. and that independence that can come from like having a bit of pocket money. So, I mean, my earliest forms of earning money came from like babysitting. I had two younger brothers and I ran like an absolute monopoly at their school with all the, all the parents in their class. Like I just, every single night of the week, I would have like somewhere I could babysit and like collect money pretty much from the age of like 12 people used to leave me like their their kids for like a couple hours and from like 12 13 super young then like my first like salary ish well not salary but like real job um was i my parents can't swim so they strategically made my brother and i lifeguards and swim instructors (laughs) (laughs) just in case anything happens you're definitely going to save them yeah exactly um and so so yeah so i in high school i worked as a lifeguard and uh and a swim instructor um And then I also worked at like my first management experience was like the now defunct um, retail brand called American Apparel. Infamous, infamous. infamous. Yeah. I started at them when I was like 16 years old and they had just gone from being a wholesale company to a retail company. And I opened stores for them like all over the US and Canada. I hired teams and I had to fire one of my friends. It was my first experience like at age 18 firing people and it was horrible i still anytime i've had to fire people throughout my career i've thought of that moment <laughs> okay. 
because it was so horrible. Wait, okay. I, I have I have many questions. Yeah. Uh, one, how did you monopolize your school for babysitting? Like, what was your like growth strategy there? Like, yeah. how did you find parents who like needed yeah. babysitting? So I think it's also like it, like anything, you have to provide. You have to have a great product. And, um, and think about, <laughs> think about your referral. No. And so, um, so I would sometimes pick my brothers up from school. I would sort of build those relationships with the parents, but you're but, not driving. Right. So it's not like no. literally picking, you're just going to school. No, to, like, I'm just going to school. It was like down the street from my, my home. Yeah. And I would meet parents. And I think also parents are relatively opportunistic and in Canada, you don't really have like helpers the way you do in Southeast Asia. So people are like, Hey, you don't look like a serial killer. Will you look after my kids? Um, um, so yeah, I think I just started with a couple of their friends and then it grew from there. And, um, and then you would lock in sort of for the summer, you'd say you, you could kind of like tease the parents and be like, you know, so-and-so has like been talking to me about going full-time with them over the summer. Wow. <laughs> Playing then, parents against each yeah. other. I like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's funny. I mean, you basically just were like, who needs babysitters? Parents. Where are their parents? Schools, yeah. like by definition, yeah. like go to school, sell the schools. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, for the American Apparel, why are they having a 16 year old like person open stores and hi hire people for them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, <laughs> but, <Okay. laughs> but I was 16 when I started in the store and then I had kind of like built that good rapport with, it was a pretty like small company at that time. And so people, w when I had that summer off, like before I went to university, um, I, yeah, I was in the good books and I, I think I just put my hand up. I saw that other people yeah. were like traveling and that they were opening all these stores. And I was like, I need to get away from Toronto, which at the time I thought was like, it was before Drake or anything. Like it was not a very cool city. <laughs> Drake changed everything. Changed Drake everything. changed everything. <laughs> and it was like, I need to get out of Toronto. And so this opportunity, I was like, I, they were opening something that, like now in hindsight, like the blitz scaling of American apparel, not a good shout. They were opening something like 15 stores in New York city and like one go and like, shutting them like two years later. But, um, but yeah, I, I was like, Hey, I, I want to live in New York. <laughs> I'll go. Um, and wait, so, like, tell like, what's the actual story? Like you're literally sitting in a meeting or something and people are, I mean, I, I can't believe, I mean, when I was 16, I never sat in a meeting before, but you're like sitting in a meeting and they're like, Hey, we want to open a bunch of these stores and you just raise your hand. You're like, I'll go. And yeah, they're like, I think there was Yolanda. this girl I knew who was like traveling with them. And she was like, they, I mean, now, especially if you know the reputation of American apparel, yeah. you kind of think of how seedy this is, but they essentially yep. had apartments like all over like the U S they had apartments in like Miami and, and New York. And like, they would just have like employees go and stay there and like work there and they'd pay you from, which is totally illegal, but like mm -hmm. they'd, they'd pay you from like your home country payroll. And, um, and so I had heard this girl and I was like, I want to do this. And I'm like, can you ask someone if I can do it too? And, um, and yeah, and, and I think I was, a, I was a hard worker and, um, and they, yeah, they, I mean, it was not, yes. to be honest, yeah, there wasn't like an interview process. I wish I was like, and I beat everyone out in the round. No, they were just like, okay, cool. Get on a plane. <laughs> 
Uh, but, you know, to be honest, like, I feel like a lot of opportunities are not interview processes, right? Yeah. It's just kind of like, nobody even asked you. Yeah. It's just like, I want to do that. Like, yeah. you just like tell somebody that you want to do something, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And my parents were so freaked out, but I was like, I am an independent woman and this, I'm going on a business trip. <laughs> like, it was just like... Yes. Yeah, so wait. So you go home and you tell your very strict Trinidadian mom, and you're like, "I'm gonna." Did you wait? So you went to New York? Yeah, I went to New York, and then I was in Miami as well. For how long? Like a periods of like, I guess a couple months here and there. Wow. Yeah. It'd be like so. You're not going to school? No, this was like over the summer. Yeah. Oh, this is the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, summers in New York and Miami are so the best time of your life. Yeah, yeah. In many, I mean, I didn't have a, a fake ID, so it was okay. It was tough, tough in that respect, but but no, but it was amazing. It was. It felt. It was so exhilarating, and and um, I mean, they worked you, you like completely against any labor laws. You essentially had to work like seven days a week for fourteen hours, like folding T-shirts, but um, but. It was, uh, yeah, it was super exciting for sure. I feel for uh, people who don't know the story of American Peril, uh, they should look it up. It's an interesting uh, 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 story, especially with the founder. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you if you know the story, uh, I'm surprised American Apparel didn't hook you up with fake IDs is basically yeah. how it goes. Like, yeah. here's an apartment, here's a fake ID. Yeah. Enjoy <laughs> um, and then so that was during the summers of like high school. That was my summer between high school and university. Then, okay. so I, yeah, I had gotten to university in Canada for like one year and then left. And during that year, I still worked for American Apparel at their store, which was opening in the university town I was at. Um, yeah. And what were you kind of thinking about? I mean, uh, I'm going to ask the question that no teenager actually knows the answer to. It's like, what were you thinking at that time? Like, you're going to go into college. I'm sure. Did you know what you wanted to major in? Did you kind of know what you wanted to do? Not like, at all. Okay. Not at all. Um, I just knew I wanted to, like, I was optimizing for freedom. <laughs> I think I thought, like, going, I went, I did one year of university at this place called Queen's University, which is, like, this very preppy university in Canada. Um, my brother had gone there. He was one year older than me. And I kind of thought it was like, this is what I need to be somewhere very boring. And I always de describe mm. Queen's University as like the university you see when you watch American movies about university. Like there was like <laughs> frat guys and sorority <laughs> girls. And, you know, anyone who knows you is like, I'm a city person through and through. And, totally. and it was this like... It was just not a fit for me, but I think at that time it was there was an image of like what I thought I should be, um, and I thought Queens would make me more into that person, um, like who was going to like go to business school or like I don't I don't know what I thought it was, but it, it seemed like this is the decision I should take because this is what's expected of me. Um, where do you think those expect, I mean, it sounds like it probably came from your mother, but like where do you think those kind of expectations on like what you should be came from? I, I, a lot of it sort of came from my parents. I think my parents as well, like just, you know, their understanding, I think as immigrants, like you're just optimizing for stability. And yeah. so for them, like their understanding of st stability is like, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or like work in finance. And, um, and then also my school, the school I went to was quite conservative like that as well. And so it, it's a classic example of like, you can only really be what you see. And so 
I thought like, okay, if I'm going to like be successful, th- these are the only paths that I can take and this is going to take me there. And as much as I don't necessarily think that's a fit, I'm going to kind of go down that path. Yeah. You know, I've kind of been updating my view on the whole, on the immigrant thing. I mean, we were both kind of like uh, immigrants and the whole stability thing, I definitely thought was like, okay, this is an immigrant thing. We want stability. But having spent more time in Southeast Asia and being from Southeast Asia, I think it's also like if you're from countries that are maybe like recently developed, stability is still a thing, right? Mm-hmm. So like I think in Singapore and I mean, I'm from Malaysia, it's like family's there. They're not immigrants. They're like from there. But yeah. it's like stability is still the thing, yeah. right? yeah. It's you still uh, yeah, and I think the the changes that people in, in a place like Singapore has, have seen in their lifetime, or you know, of my parents' generation, will be sort of similar. And you're just trying to like optimize for that. That makes sense. So you went to okay. So you were like you went to school, and then you were going to college. You're just kind of like. I guess there because you thought you were going, you were yeah. supposed to be there. And then what happened after that? Oh, so I came back to the city. I was like, mom and dad, I want to be an artist, <laughs> which if, if you, even though my parents are with the Caribbean, they're still ultimately very Asian. They were like, you, you what? <laughs> like, absolutely not. I was like, I that is like, that is like Asian parents, like worst nightmare. It's like, you want to be, you're, le- wait, sorry. I just put you to college and you're yeah, an artist. Exactly. It was like, I want to go to art school. It's not for me. I, I don't like this place. Um, and I, I want to go to art school and, and being very, this is like one of these defining moments in, in my life really, um, where they essentially, my mother essentially was like, if you don't go back to university, Wow. You cannot move back into our house essentially wow. for the summer, which I like, I was like, okay, challenge accepted with again, not fully understanding, um, what it takes to like live independently. <laughs> I was like, I have a job at American apparel, mom, I'm moving out. <laughs> like not, not understanding like how much rent is and how much like living as an adult is, but I did it. And I moved out into a two bedroom apartment with two friends. So we sort of, rotated we had two bedrooms and and three people living there um and that was that is honestly like that summer was one of my my defining um defining moments so I decided I was like not going to go back in my head I knew I wanted to go to university but I knew I I wanted to do it on my own terms and kind of explore what I wanted to do um and so that summer my friends and I we had thought that okay, we can build, like, we had seen this movie about Andy Warhol's, like, factory. And we, <laughs> which now, okay, it sounds obscene now that I'm, like, 33, looking back and being, like, and we thought we could build, like, an Andy Warhol factory. And in Toronto in those days, real estate wasn't as expensive. And you could rent these, like, crazy, like, disgusting, in quite d- disgusting industrial spaces, but kind of live in them as well. And, um, and we thought we could turn it into, like, an art production, like gallery, factory, whatever. And none of us like actually, I think the oldest adult in the room was like 23. And none of us like knew how the business model of like an art gallery works or anything like that. So we started to realize like, oh shit, how how are we going to, I was still working at American Apparel, but we were like, how are we going to pay rent? And so we had this very big um, space in the, and, and we sort of started, it happened really organically, but 
we thought that like nightlife in Toronto was like not as cool as New York. It was when kind of electronic music was like starting to kind of take off. And these people from Europe would like come over and they'd play in New York. And we would message these people on MySpace and say, do you want to play a show in Toronto? Or sometimes they'd be booked for a show and we'd say like, do you want to play an after party? Um, which is again, completely illegal because there's a, a 2 a.m. kind of last call for alcohol and we bought a uh, vending machine off of Craigslist and stuffed it with beer. And we thought that got around like the selling alcohol thing. And so we, we started to throw these parties and you could hold like 300 people there. And we kind of became this like mini like booking agency. And, it, and now like some acts that are quite big played at, at this space that we called our space because of my space. And it was like our space and people like major laser, like LCD sound system. We had wow. Punk play there. Like we did some like pretty massive, um, shows in those in the early days of this kind of scene taking off in um in toronto and uh and it was called add and we then started to do like some big brand partnerships um which none of us like understood how to do i remember at the time doing something with red bull and then not like thinking we got so much money and now I'm like, oh my God, they fleeced us. <laughs> they fleeced us. <laughs> and, uh, and we worked on like the kind of, uh, kind of a, a consultant for this, um, this guy named Peter Gation who had like opened up a, a bunch of nightclubs in the nineties in New York, these really famous ones called like Limelight Tunnel. He was Canadian. He was opening something in, um, in Toronto. And we were kind of like brought in as these like young, like kids who could kind of, create this um this nightlife there and so ADD was sort of this like booking agency this events company this kind of promoter and and that's really how I got involved in the music industry so I knew all of these artists and um and from there like one of them had kind of uh, that we'd we'd booked for a couple of shows like they were like hey we had this is probably when I'm 19 they they said hey we had someone like quit do you want to come on tour with us as a production assistant? And so, so, um, so that's when I started, technically I was hired by, um, ITB, which, uh, international talent booking, which is like one of the biggest, um, artist booking agencies in the world. But I did work directly for, um, an act called soul Wax and two and too many DJs. They had two acts, but I toured with them all over the world at the age I'm 19. We did Coachella. We did Glastonbury, Fuji Rocks, like wow. you name it. Like I was, I spent a year of my life, which probably shaved like a few years off of my life, but on probably. the on the road with like 14 dudes, like doing, um, doing like like techno productions around the world, and and um, and it was incredible. Like it, in many ways, like I still. I learned so much about like thinking on your feet because essentially like my job was you sign these like technical writers and artist writers like which are essentially like a list of things you need when you arrive you're yep. contract contractually bound to and my job was like sometimes we'd land that morning and have a show that evening and like just to make sure like all of that stuff was there and then sometimes, you know, that works really well in markets like the US and the UK where people will, will follow that. But like sometimes you'd land in like Mexico City or Guadalajara and be like, wait, you guys have none of the stuff you need. And you're sort of running around the city trying to to um, 
to get everything in order. Um, there, there's a famous story. I'm sure you've heard of it where I forget which band it was, but basically they, they wrote into their contract that they only want red M&Ms yes. in the dressing room. And that was their way of seeing if the people actually yeah. like read their like terms. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I always thought that was very clever. Yeah. People, artists will do super sneaky stuff. Cause you'll be like, we need seven bottles of champagne and they'll buy like the mini champagnes. <laughs> so skeezy. <laughs> So I feel like, I mean, that's an incredible story. And it's like, what an experience to have when you're like 19. Um, like what, but it's also unique. I mean, you were an entrepreneur at basically like that age, right? I mean, that whole thing you started is like, sure, it's not like a tech startup, but like that's entrepreneurship by any definition. Yeah. And you had no idea what you're doing, right? I mean. No, definitely not. I, <laughs> we were just trying to and, pay rent. <laughs> right. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people who want to start startups now, they often get this paralysis where it's like, oh, I just don't know how to do that. Or like, I don't know how this works. And like, so they never get started. And you, I mean, you and your friends kind of like didn't let any of that stop you. Right. Yeah. And yeah. like, what do you think it was? I mean, and look, some part of it is probably being young and that kind of stuff, yeah. but like you clearly just figured it out along the way. And you're like, like, why, why are you messaging Major Lager on MySpace and being like, hey, you should come play this thing? Like, like, he like who does that? You know he I mean? didn't have money for a hotel. He was like, he was Diplo in those days. But yeah. Um, yeah. But you know what I mean, right? Yeah. It's like I think, the audacity, right? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of this like, in, it's one part idealism, I think, where it's like having this vision for how things should be. And like, it's not necessarily like, like, you know, maybe it was superficial in the sense, like, we just thought nightlife in Toronto should be cooler. And, and that was, like, something that we rallied around. I will definitely not discount the fact that there was, like, oh, shit, we need to, like, pay rent. Like, I've never been poorer <laughs> than I was in, at that time of my life. Yeah. Like, I yeah. remember having less than $20 in my account and not being able to, like, take out that 20, that $19 because the minimum withdrawal in like Canada, Canadian banks is like $19. And so, um, so there was definitely that element of like, okay, we just need to figure it out so that we can like eat. Um, and, and there is, I guess like a bit of a, yeah, there is a, like a sort of young flippancy or arrogance. I don't know what you'd call it where it's like, I'm just going to figure this out. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I accept that. But like, yeah, I'm still going to go for it. And maybe it's not going to work, but then we're going to try something else. And then we're going to host weddings or something. I don't know, in the, in the space. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was sort of the, the attitude. But it's only in... It, but then I say it like, at the time, we didn't necessarily like think about it. It was like, hey, this is a cool thing we want to do. Let's try it. It wasn't necessarily like thinking, overthinking it. Like, I think you've got to underthink sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. We had uh, one thing that I've been thinking, I have thought a lot about over the years is like, how do you keep that level of kind of optimism and almost naiveness, even as you get older, right? Like we got started doing startups because we had no idea what we were doing. So like, like the, now the thing that this, the story I always tell is, you can't be afraid of the dragon in the cave if you don't know that there's a dragon or you yeah. don't know that the dragon will eat you. Like, yeah. you're just like, cool, there's a cave. Like, let's go in the cave, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you're young, you just don't know anything about the dragon, right? So yeah. you're just like, cool, let's go. Um, but as you get older, like, you learn all about all these things and primarily learn about how why things don't work. And 
So I don't know. I, I, that's something that, I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about, but it's like, that's something yeah. I think about a lot of like, how do you fight some of that as you get older? Yeah. I'm still learning that. Like, cause I think that that feeling doesn't necessarily no. go away. Like, I think you just learn to sit with that discomfort better. Like I think mm -hmm. you're constantly like pushing yourself and you'll, you'll hear, I'm sure as you, as you hear my story, like there's, you're kind of constantly putting yourself in scenarios that make you uncomfortable, but like, that's ultimately how you learn and how you grow. And so you've got to kind of learn to like sit with that fear of the dragon. Otherwise, like you kind of don't ever find the treasure in the cave. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. I feel like you're, you're almost, you almost never as confident as you were when you were like 19, even though you know so much more, right? That's um, so true. And yeah. I don't know. It's a funny thing. Um, okay, so you 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 went on tour uh, yeah. for a year, uh, and you obviously were not going to college, right? So you no. did like a year of college. You're like, I'm leaving home. Yeah, you're like on tour, and like, what's? I mean, you eventually kind of like stopped in the music. You stopped kind of being part of the music industry. Like, what happened? Did you just kind of like get burned out of being on tour, where you're like, I got to do something else? Yeah, I think I a few things happened, like. I think the freedom that I was so craving for so long, I got, I got it like in the You got all of it. You got all, all of it. it. <laughs> I did all the things. And so yeah. I was like, okay, I'm done. That, there was that element. There was also like, it stopped being interesting and challenging. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same production pretty much every night. It, and it started to be just like, you know, whether you were in Tokyo or Dallas or like, you know, Chile, you wouldn't really care. It was the same show. And so I think once that I stopped thinking, Yolanda, your life sounds so cool. You're like, yeah, you know, whether you're in Tokyo or Chile or Dallas, yeah, it's all the yeah, same. And I'm like, like, wow, that's, no, your like, life is so I mean, cool. but the thing is like, you would only be in these yeah, places yeah. for like 48 hours max. Yeah. And so, um, so there was that. And then there was just like, I think it gave me that headspace to like, think about, okay, what do I want to be doing? What's important to me? Um, and I, realized how important I think having an impact was. And hmm. I think I was then finally kind of ready to, yeah, ready to, ready to go back to university. Like I felt like then I was, yeah, I was just really interested. I, I was interested. I had seen the world. I was interested in kind of like making that better somehow. I know it sounds like very altruistic, but that is generally what motivated me. I kind of felt like I was in this place where I looked around at the people who were like more senior and I didn't necessarily want to be them. And so I thought it was like a really fun kind of gap year and, uh, and started getting ready to, to go back to university. And I was really, I always had like a very clear picture in my head that I wanted to like work in emerging markets. Like that was, I don't know what it was. I think it was like, maybe I saw a little bit of it when I was on tour. Um, May it was also my parents were from emerging markets. I've always kind of had this like fascination that like this is where the change is going to come and this is where there's like more interesting problems to solve. And um, so I, I studied like, international development. Like I thought I was going to work at like the United Nations. I, I almost came full circle. I was like, I need to repent for my years in the, <laughs> in the music industry. So I'm going to go and like save the world and work for like the United Nations or the world bank or something 
something like that. And so that was really the trajectory I was on. I did, I interned at the UN. I worked at the European Court of Human Rights. I was like, I am now like the ultimate, I was valedictorian of my undergraduate class. I graduated top of my class at Oxford. Queens? No, no. I, I, then so I you switched? Yeah. So I was like, I'm not moving back to Canada. I, um, I had, I had spent a lot of time like in Brussels and I thought like, oh, I, I was really fascinated by the European Union because I was interested in um, in this like kind of moving beyond like nationalism, which at mm -hmm. the time seemed like in my head, like, oh, this is like going to die and we're going to get rid of borders. And it was like, this, I, yeah, now, now, now yeah. but you know, in those, in those like, you know, mid 2000s, it was sort of like, oh, this is like, we're moving to this kind of multilateralism and, and um and I wanted, I wanted to improve my French. I speak French as well. And so I moved to, um, to Brussels and I, and I was kind of studying there. I, um, and I liked it because it gave me this sort of access to a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of the organizations I wanted to be working at in the time, at that time and getting that exposure, which I think ultimately kind of helped me because, it, I think having those experiences and those exposures, sometimes when you're in university, you have these ideals of like what it's going to be like to work in these uh, spaces and getting those tastes like throughout university helped me to realize like, hmm, maybe this, maybe this isn't quite where I want to be. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's two parts of that that kind of really resonates. One is, is that, and I've heard you say this before, you know, since we've, we've talked a bunch of times. But if you're ever at a place where you're looking at the people that are more senior than you and you don't want to be them, you're like, I don't know if I should be here. Yeah. Right? Like that's like a telltale yeah. sign of like you should, you should rethink. Yeah. Right. Um, and, but it's an interesting kind of like. Like change because you I mean, you literally get off tour and then you move to like Brussels and you like start going to school. And like you said, you were like very successful at school. You were like valedictorian. Yeah. You went to Oxford. Yeah. Right. And like. Yeah. I want a prize like, at Oxford and like, which everyone in my class was like so disappointed. Cause I just did things like I never the, the student who works like the most hours, but I work in a very uh, smart way. Uh, I, I hate you. Like, I'm just like, mm, this isn't on the exam. So I'm not going to show up. <laughs> like, um, and, and yeah. And so that, but, but I think honestly, my experience of, I think that the diversity of my experience, whether it's yeah. like working in the music industry or moving to all, that that ultimately helped me to, and still to this day, like helps me to see, yeah. I'm very good at like taking systems from completely different like places and applying them in other places and like thinking about problems in really different ways. And like, I did win um, a prize at Oxford for like my dissertation. And that was the feedback they got. They were like, you completely went like out to left field and took this completely different, like, theoretical framework or whatever and applied it to something like to a completely different discipline. And that is like a theme I think in my life is like, I, I attack problems through kind of a different, a different way. Yeah. And that, and I just elaborate on that. I, that to you comes from you having just like a wide range of experiences. Yeah. I think it comes down to also to like the core of who I am in many ways. Like being able to always kind of like straddle multiple, I've always like straddled multiple worlds. And I think like part, that's a big part of my identity that like maybe was a bit hard in the beginning, but now I think I'm like, I'm okay. Like 
kind of being being in like multiple boxes and um and even in like you know living in Singapore people it's like yeah I am like kind of Chindian but like also Caribbean but also Canadian but and you kind of just learn learn like like yeah through having those layers of identity you kind of can can uh blend and and see things from different perspectives I think the code switching part is like very kind of like comes through too yeah like context kind of um so what did you okay so you were so you went from touring school or touring for a year and then being really good student uh and then so you know you graduated you went from brussels then you studied at oxford and then you graduated from oxford and i mean you're kind of like on top of the world a little bit right you went to this like very good school you kind of like won this award and i'm sure you could have done a lot of things um what did you end up deciding to do yeah um so after that I had, yeah, I'd been like explore. I, I actually didn't necessarily like know what I wanted to do as many graduates, <laughs> as many graduates don't. Um, but I was exploring a lot of options and there was definitely this, again, like this, this like side of me that was like, maybe you should become a management consultant. <laughs> and, you know, so many people were like going down those, those paths. And um, what did I my story was, okay, I had done some of my research for my uh, master's in Kenya. And I had spent a lot of time, spent some time on the ground and seen a, like, I thought I wanted to go and work in like the World Bank. And then when I was on the ground, I realized that they're not necessarily like moving the needle or like having a measurable impact in the way that I thought, um, I had, I had ideally hoped, but what I did see while I was in Kenya was how incredible and the impact that, that technology could have. And so, uh, for those of you that, that maybe don't know that Kenya has this incredible system of mobile payments called M-Pesa, which is one of the the most successful systems of mobile payments. You can pay with like a non-smartphone, literally anywhere in the country wow. and have, yeah, you can pay on like a Nokia 200 from like the, eight, the 90s and, um, and pay for things like in rural Kenya. It has something like 89% penetration. Wow. <coughs> so, um, so that was incredible uh, to see how technology transformed lives because you saw people from like, who were like storing money under their mattress and, to go to storing money in M-Pesa and being able to kind of amass savings for the first time. And I just thought there's, I'd never seen anything like this in my life, particularly in a market like Kenya. And so then, you know, I had a friend who was, um, who was working for rocket internet, um, at that time, she was a childhood friend from Canada and, uh, and she was like, Hey, rocket is doing a massive expansion maybe you should think about coming here. And I was, you know, interviewing for the consulting firms and for these like big entry level, like entry level roles with these big like um, organizations, like, uh, like the World Bank and, and UN, but they were kind of like internships. Like, cause you can't, you have to really start in the ground. You have to start in, like the ground floor at those places. And so, um, so I like, when I got the rocket offer, I was like, okay, I, like what you want me to like have all of this responsibility and and that was really exciting to me like it really was um the amount of yeah of experience and and um 
and responsibility that they were willing to give like a 20 something year old who had like literally never (laughs) managed a budget before in her life, like was crazy. And so that I couldn't turn down. Like when I look, when I compared that to like, okay, these very um, straightforward, like consulting roles or, or things like that. Like I just, I really looked at like my propensity for growth and my propensity for growth was so massive. So from there, I, uh, I joined Rocket Internet and, and got, on that, um, got on that ride. And so their big Africa HQ they were building out in the beginning was, um, was in Nigeria. And that was sort of the, the big hub. And they were setting up essentially like a, a business that's now called Jumia, but it was uh, Amazon of Africa. And it is Amazon of Africa. <laughs> it is... Um, and so, yeah, my initial um, job was was kind of like helping to kind of get that off the ground. It was sort of my test role, and and you know, being kind of a jack of jack of all trades, um, and yeah, and, and kind of helping to launch that. Whether it's like looking at you know warehouses or signing up sellers or like training uh, drivers or like it was it was just like chaos and it was in. I, like absolute chaos. It was, I mean, working in West Africa, like I think is where I really came of age as, as a mm. leader. Like I think, um, I had to, it was, it was really a baptism by fire. Like it was, I think I went there as like a nice Canadian girl <laughs> and I left as like a really tough businesswoman. And, and it was, um, yeah, it was really tough. It was really tough in the sense of like, I was not used to that many friction points, like just in your day to day life, like opening a bank account will take you nine months. Uh, you know, just, just basics, like, like the level of market education, because you really are, you're not just first mover in your vertical. So I then went on to like launch and manage, um, uh, the, the food vertical for Jumia, which was um, food delivery, so similar to it was essentially Food Panda. It was the same company in those days, but it was called mm. Hello Food in that region. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it, you have to think like the level. You always need to do like a degree of market education with with uh, a new product. But in yeah. West Africa, in particular, it is you're like the first online business that someone is interacting with, and so learning to build that trust not just like trust in your brand but like trust in like ordering things online is is a lot of market education and and that goes like because we were building marketplace models it was really about building mark trust across all aspects of the marketplace so getting restaurants to trust you getting riders to trust you and getting customers to trust you so um yeah How did you think about like, I mean, I feel like you just like went in your story. I feel like in your head, you're just like, oh yeah, I went to Africa. But I feel like for most people, like that's kind of a big decision. But to you, it almost was kind of like, it seems more exciting the way you talk about it. Yeah. It wasn't like, yeah. I I mean, it was so fast, partially because Rocket Internet were like, we need you here next week. (laughs) Like, So it was so fast. Like I, I didn't honestly have that much time to mm. mull it over. 
And I think like when I, I really believe in like being a yes person, a yes woman, a yes Hmm. person. And so it was the opportunity to get on, get on this rock. I mean, rocket ship in some ways, but it, but it was really like starting off in the continent. And so it was, it was this ability to be part of something. And if it, if I hated it, I could always leave. Um, so I didn't really like think it through that much. And, and I, I did, I, I am so sort of attracted to places where an Africa as a region is like somewhere that, people have so many preconceived notions about and I was so intrigued to to really become like to gain that firsthand experience in a place where people have so many ideas about and and particularly in building like a tech company like Africa is probably like the part of the world you think the least about and so there was this element of like okay I want to be a part of that I want to be part of like the first e-commerce company on the continent and that's like something I can I can always say I, w- I was part of and and it was it was an incredible experience kind of to to set it up it wasn't without its challenges though like I I used to call my parents crying <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're very worried about you too like yes and no I like weirdly I just don't know if they like naively didn't realize how how crazy it was <laughs> like they were sort of like oh cool like have fun <laughs> like uh, <laughs> Yeah. Have fun. Have okay. fun. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I guess you toured for a year, so it's kind of like this seems like Yolanda doing Yolanda things. So. Yeah, yeah. I think they were more concerned about that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm gonna fast forward a ton. Okay. Um, so you're. So I mean, just to give people quick things, like you were in Africa for a while, and you've been in Singapore for like a couple of years, right? You were with mm-hmm. Deliveroo here yeah. for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and then you're working on a new startup now called Uncommon. Do you want to talk to people kind of like what that is real quick? Yeah, sure, sure. I'd be happy to um, to share more about Uncommon. So Uncommon is a new kind of invite-only professional community for women in Southeast Asia. Um, when I was in lockdown, so like it kind of has been an idea I've been working on for a while in in different iterations. But um, when I was in lockdown, I interviewed over 100 women in Singapore. And I noticed like some fundamental patterns um, that, that started to come up, like, on a scale of one to 10. The women in, in this group that I interviewed, they rated the quality of their professional network at, a, at about a four. And when I looked at like, Wow. The, and then when I asked them, like, okay, what is, um, what, what do they rank the importance of having, like, a strong network in their career? They ranked it a nine. So that was, like, a pretty big disconnect. It's like, okay. That's a huge delta, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when I dug into this, like, and when I, like, was interviewing these women, like, I realized, like, a lot of the tools that exist for, like, building a network are fundamentally designed for men and, and not necessarily in the ways in which women want to connect, which is through shared experience, through building relationships rather than something really trans- transactional. And so that was sort of like the thesis initially. And, and that thesis was somewhat validated by I had been hosting I've been like in the woman space, if you can call it that, like for a long time, (laughs) I had kind of been like 
hosting uncommon actually started as a dinner and I would like host, um, a monthly dinner that was sort of word of mouth, um, for about like eight to 12 women. Um, and it would be on like a broad, but like a, a kind of shared, shared experience subject. So it could be something like confidence or it could be jealousy or, and, and that was sort of like how we started to build, um, to build this community. Um, and then, you know, how I, so when I say I was like in the women's space, like I've been on every diversity committee, the good, the bad, the ugly, at every company I've been at. Um, I've been, and, and actually at Deliver, I set up like our gender diversity task force and all of, and so I was, it was like pretty, even though it wasn't my core role, I was, I was invested in the space. I was getting to understand the problem. I felt like I spent a lot of my career, like kind of testing out what I thought, yeah, what I thought was missing in the space. Cause I knew I was kind of like circling around it. Um, and, and yeah, so, so uncommon, like we essentially offer like a suite of services to women and hopefully that will be something that can be, uh, personalized. So it's everything from peer coaching, um, exec coaching, we run programs, uh, we have speaker series and workshops. And the idea is that we can develop women according to their own kind of personalized goals, but in achieving their personalized goals, we can, um, it's like achieving your personalized goals, but together. And you kind of realize that shared experience. It's like, even though it's individual, you kind of keep each other accountable and supportive through that, um, that community. And did you, like, you were talking about you were, like, in the, like, women's, like, space. Um, and, like, obviously, you're, you're a woman, so you, like, care. But, like, what was there, what drew you more to kind of do something about it? Was it, like, uh, personal experiences that you had and kind of, like, probably being in a lot of room with, like, a lot of dudes and, like, not kind of seeing a lot of people like you? Like, what was, I mean, I think a lot of people have felt probably kind of like what you felt. But there's something, I mean, you're kind of doing something about it. Like, where do you yeah. think that comes from? Yeah, I think it's like a long, it's a long arc, to be honest. Like it's, Hmm. I think I had, you know, these moments throughout my career, which were challenging and I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily have that support. And I, I honestly, I think part of it was like, I just got tired about talking about this in in the back channels with my, my female leader friends. And I was like, with this shouldn't be like solely bilateral conversations. So that was part of it. But I also remember like a big moment for me was at like one of my first roles. And I found out like, I found out like someone who was actually like managing a smaller business than me was paid 30% more than me for the, for, and I, I remember like the day I found that out and how horrible I felt. And, and yeah. And just that, that I was like told that, you know, there was no room in the budget and the, you know, this and that. And that was like some, that was, that was like a start of something, but, um, but there was also, you know, coming back to this idea of like code switching, like I grew up with three brothers. And so I do have like an ability to turn up like my broiness, and it has served, it has served me. It, and, and like, and I don't, it's a bit sad that it, it's had, I've had to do that. But yeah, like, that's why yeah, I'm laughing. Yeah. It's a bit sad. I've had to do that, but I had like, not necessarily like consciously, but I knew that I could like 
get, get ahead in many ways. Like, and I can build that like connection with like the people that I needed to like by being kind of like out broing all the bros. Like, <laughs> and maybe this is like my time in the music industry, which like helped to kind of pad that, pad that. But, um, but that was like a big part of it. But I saw like particularly women who like didn't necessarily not, that's not for everyone. And like every woman shouldn't like have to like, you know, chug, all. chug all the like beers or whatever, like stuff like that. Like that shouldn't be like a, pre- a prerequisite. And so there was that element of it. And then it was also like, you know, there's like the big pieces there. I think people think of like, um, women in the workplace and the big piece is like sexual harassment. Like that is definitely there. And that is definitely a problem, but the, it's the day to day that like keeps, yeah, they, 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 that stops women from getting ahead. Like I've been on like hiring panels, particularly like, which I don't understand like how someone thought this was okay to say, but I've been on hiring panels where we interviewed like an incredible female candidate and was like, I don't know if like, we should take her on because, you know, she's moving to the city and her husband's here and she's probably going to want to start a family. Like the level of like mental gymnastics that you have to do to not want to take on a character, uh, sorry, a candidate. Um, but like the level of mental gymnastics to like come to that conclusion was just crazy to me. And, um, and there, there was like so I mean, many. that's illegal in the United yeah. States, right? Yeah. I think that's illegal. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And even okay. like, I mean, that is illegal in, in a lot of countries. Not that that yeah. stops people from saying it, to, yeah, be, to be fair. For sure, for sure. Um, and and it's in like much more subtle, subtle ways that it shows up. And it's like being, I always had to like walk the line between, you know, this is such a common trope, but it is so real where like you are too aggressive and you're mm. not assertive enough at the same time like you are damned if you do and like i would often get that feedback i got it on the same performance review once like you are too aggressive and you put people off in the office and and then like three comments down but like but you really need to speak up more <laughs> was like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like which one is it yeah exactly you're like i just don't know how to even like implement that feedback and so um so that was, yeah, that, that was definitely um, an element of it as well as like seeing, uh, I think like once I started to have this heightened awareness was, you know, thinking of, okay, how can, because a big part of being like a female leader is figuring out, coming back to that, that bit about discomfort is like, you've got to build the discomfort, be comfortable with the discomfort of standing in the gap. And because you've got to get comfortable, like being in rooms where no one looks like you, where no one's going to see your viewpoint, where no one's going to validate like your, your, your views. And there's this like resilience, um, this ironclad resilience that you have to build up, but it's so hard to do it alone. It's so, and, and, um, and I do think that so much value can come from come from share having that shared experience and and realizing that you're not um, you're not you know and I, t- I think you were the one who actually told me this ter- term but like that you're not an island like I think that's one thing I realized is like so many female leaders like feel like an island and they don't realize that like everyone else is kind of feeling like that as well. Yeah, and I, th- I feel I mean I, I'm a dude. So I don't see some of uh, a lot of this, but like I have, a, I have quite a few female friends and you know, your, 
uh, private chat groups with other female, like I see that all over yeah. the place. Like everybody I know is on like some chat group with yeah. that, right? And it's always on the down low. Yeah. And it's never kind of like, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I totally, I totally kind of like see those kind of around. Yeah. Um, and I think the other part that is tricky, you know, some of the conversations that I've had with friends who um, are, are women and they're especially founders is they, they have this moral struggle between whether they get good at playing the game, like the bro game mm -hmm. or not. Right. And like some are kind of willing to do it and they're okay with that. And some people are like, I don't feel like I should have to. And so I don't want to. Right. Yeah. And it's like, how, how do you kind of, where do you land on that? It's like, I was like, when I think about that, I'm like, I have no idea <laughs> where I would land on that. Like, that's such a tough place to be. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. I think it's like different for each, uh, mm. for each person, I guess it's, yeah, it's kind of your damned if you do. Damned if yeah. You know. yeah. Yeah. And I guess the other part of it too is, is that, I mean, we, we do not have enough time to get into like all of the systematic reasons why the world is the way that yeah. it is. Um, but whenever I think about this particular problem, it feels like it's not going to be solved and look, I, you know, you know this much better than me, so correct yeah. me. But my view is, it seems like it's not going to get solved overnight. And it's there's no simple answers here, right? Like, yeah. not everybody is all of a sudden going to become empathetic and yeah. we're all just going to be like, kumbaya, like, there's no way, right? Um, and so I guess maybe as a place to kind of start, um, like, how do you... I guess there's two parts, right? There's going, there's going to be women who listen to this. And like, you know, what? how do they kind of help themselves and kind of be part of the solution and that kind of stuff. Maybe there's another part too. It's like for all the men that are listening to this and mm -hmm. me included, like how do they kind of like help, right? Like yeah. it's it certainly, this is not going to get solved by a bunch of men sitting on the side being like, Oh, this is a problem for you. So y'all sure. figure this out. Like it's not going to work. Right. So I don't know. How do you kind of think about that for kind of the, the different genders? Yeah, I would say for women, like, and this is just speaking from, my experience, but I would say, um, you know, a big, it's really important to kind of have a supportive crew. Like, and it doesn't just have to be women, but like people that you, and this is something like we did with, with our members at Uncommon is like coming up with like, you know, who is the person who's going to like be your kind of everyday person, like who maybe keeps you like kind of motivated. Who's your person who's going to give it to you that straight talk when you really need it. Who's the person you know, who'll give you those technical skills, uh, that you need in your domain and like building this sort of like advice, personal, like advisory board and like keeping a regularity to that, like cadence and these people that are going to like push you and keep you accountable. And this is kind of something we've tried to do at Uncommon is like, how can we kind of build these, like, cause it isn't necessarily about like knowing everybody in the city. It's like, how can you build your, your core to be really strong. And then when you do interact with like everyone out there, you've, you've got this kind of core, to, strong core to come back to. Um, that would be, that, that I think is really, really important uh, for women. Do you uh, feel like you have that? Like personally, like, do you have that kind of just like at some point in your career now, do you feel like you have that? Yeah, I think I've learned to, to build that. Like, I think there's times, like particularly earlier in my career, like I did not have that. And like, you know, probably part of the reason why I was like paid 30% less. Like I, someone would have told me like, Hey, you should push back on this. Or, 
Um, and so, yeah, now I do now I've, I, but it's something like you have to cultivate, but like a lot of women have told me, like, I don't even know where to find these people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that's what we're kind of trying to do with uncommon is like, how can we create this and save people the time? Like, what are you going to do? Like go and hunt people down <laughs> on LinkedIn. Like, my LinkedIn is just filled with spam. Like, like, even if someone did reach out to me, I wouldn't even see it. Um, and so, um, so being able to kind of like build, yeah, I have been able to build that, but it's only been in, I'd say like the last three years I've, I've been intentional about, about doing that. Yeah. And I, I, maybe that's the trick too. It's like, you have to be kind of intentional about it. Otherwise it's not going to kind of like happen, right? Like you're yeah. like, okay, I do need this stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, but what about the men's side? Yeah, oh, there's so much. I, I'm so happy you uh, you asked this question because I I completely agree that like men are such a crucial part of this, and and the the majority of men I speak to, like they want to help, and 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 so I don't like by any means think that that you know the majority of men like don't <laughs> don't want to help in some some way and don't acknowledge that this is a problem. Um, I would say like, it's really simple, but starting with listening, like, like a lot of the frustrations I, I hear when I speak with women is like that they're not, they're just not listened to that their experience, because it might be different from, you know, what's, what's reflected in, you know, the kind of wider body of, of people that they work with or, or, or wider society. It's not necessarily shared these experiences, but that, just listening can be a really great place to start like <laughs> listening and validating what, what, what women are going through. Like, um, that, that is a huge, that is revolutionary in and of itself. Um, I would also say, you know, a big, a big piece of the puzzle is like having those difficult conversations and mm. confrontations with other men. Like the same thing can carry so much more weight and can land so much better than coming from a man, than coming from a woman, sorry, than coming from a woman, um, versus a man. Like it, I, some of the times in my career when I have felt like the most let down have been when like male friends or male colleagues have like not, have seen something really horrible go, go on and just kind of not, not said anything. And, um, and so that can, having those difficult conversations, whether they're one-on-one, whether they're like in a meeting, um, like, you know, calling, if, if a woman's like said something and someone kind of takes over or takes credit for it, like calling that, calling that out in a nice mm. way, like that, um, just, just being that sort of person, being that person. Cause you're not, the, the reality is like, there's less of a penalty when it comes from a, a man. Like I think as a woman, you're constantly ca- calculating yeah. like, what's the penalty for me saying this? How is it, how am I going to get backlash for, for saying this? And, um, and the other thing is just taking like micro steps. Like, you know, I think when I look at that, like very small sample size of a hundred, like, okay, how can uh, that sample size of a hundred who, who think their network is a four out of 10, like how, can you pay it forward? Can you meet that woman for a coffee? Can you mentor someone um, that that those kind of small acts really, um, really, I think dramatically can can change people's careers. 
Um, I, I guess a couple of thoughts here. I can, I can totally relate with the, like, when you're the person that's in the position of privilege, like standing up for the person who maybe is not, because I think, you know, growing up, I was a minority in the United States and it's the same thing, right? Yeah. It's like, if you're in, if, you know, it helped, at least in the United States was majority kind of white, like I think white people kind of sticking up for minorities like yeah. helps, right? And I can totally identify with that. Um, and I see it in Singapore too, because now I'm part of the majority and that's a very weird <laughs> feeling, but like, it's the same thing, right? And like men kind of like are in a place we, we don't lose points, uh, as, as you kind of put it, right? So yeah. kind of stepping in in those places kind of like yeah. helps. Um, is there anything we can do to help the listening part? And I mean, like, I mean, first of all, like uh, low, low, low bar is like, you know, our job is to like listen, like, uh, you know, uh, men should be able to do that. But to be frank, uh, you know, uh, we are not known for our ability to listen. Um, so we can all do better there. Um, but I think part of it too is like, how do we signal that we are kind of like want to listen? Cause I think sometimes maybe women are kind of jaded that like the world has kind of taught them that like men don't want to listen to it or like that kind of stuff. And so is there something we can do to kind of like, I don't uh, signal, ask questions to kind of be like, Hey, like this is like, I mean, and look, I don't want to engage with someone if they don't want to engage with me. Yeah. Like, you know, my job is, their job is not engage with me. Right. But like almost kind of make it okay. Like, Hey, if, if, if this is something you want to talk about, like, you know, um, is there something we like we can kind of do there? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, yeah, that it would be, I would say like probably bridging this, Bridging this, if you observe something, like for me, the mm. best times people have brought it up is like, like sometimes it's a bit exhausting as a woman, like to constantly totally. have to talk about like <laughs> the page, the, um, the challenges of like being, being, a, um, a female leader. But I think if you observe something like building it around that context can often be like, Got it. Hey, I, I observed this, like just wanted to check if, um, if you're okay, or like, what would be like a, a great way to support you in, in a situation like that? Or, and, and I think framing, framing it in that way can, can really help. I think it depends also on like your level on your relationship with the person in, in a lot of ways. Like there's some people, mm -hmm. I think, you know, depending on their level of comfort, like, yeah, being that, um, that person and that who will kind of listen and validate those, those experiences is really, um, really important but but it can be hard with with yeah strangers or people you don't know where where there is that sort of barrier and and I think in a lot of ways women can I have definitely felt and I think we can be socialized like we should not complain like we should be grateful for <laughs> like there's a this sense of like oh I don't want to like look like I'm not happy or I'm not grateful for how how far I've come. And, and so there's a little bit of like, Oh, I don't know if this is like a safe enough space to express these things. So I think gauging that based on kind of your level of, of comfort with someone is important as well. I think the, the, I think it's great advice to, um, like put it within the context of something you notice, right? Because I think sometimes, I mean, it's like you said, it's like, it can be exhausting if like every guy is like, hey, talk to me about being a, a female founder or like a female, like, it's just like, okay, like, 
you know, like I have to live with this uh, like all day. Now I got to educate you to, like every dude that I run into. It's like, oh, great. Right. Um, but I think that it sounds like kind of if you notice some of those things and just even checking because then they can opt in and out of it seems like a good approach. They can be like, no, yeah. I'm OK. And take that as kind of like, look, you know, yeah, let them kind of be. They don't, you know. Yeah. Another tactic is like to educate yourself and bring up it, like bring it in, in that ter- in terms of that sort of framing being like, I've had men be like, Hey, I've read, you know, lean in, <laughs> tell me, is it, d- does that like mirror your experience? And you're like, yeah, hmm. sort of in this way and not in this way. And you can build a talking point around that. Like, I think being a woman and a minority, like you often, <laughs> you often like sometimes get like hit on both ends. Like yeah. <laughs> your friends yeah. like wanting to explain. And so sometimes it's easier if someone's done like a little bit of legwork, first so you're not like starting from scratch yeah do you have recommendations on what that legwork is i mean like i mean should every guy just run out and like read lean in uh um, i mean lean in's like a no i mean lean in's like a kind of business book but there's a yeah. lot of like i actually am a, a big fan of like reading um reading fiction because you can hear like mm. ex- experiences and stories so it's less sort of like just exposing yourselves to to different perspectives and and being immersed in different worlds. Like I'm a big fan of of, of fiction as well. So, um, yeah, I can I can kind of yeah send send you some. Um, but I really love the book Americana in terms of like framing. Oh, I just yeah. got that. Oh, you oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of like framing, like from a really different experiences and 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 I love anything by Zadie Smith. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm sort of blanking at the moment uh, I, I on mean, what I'm reading, but I mean, yeah. to, I oh, girl, I woman, totally, other girl, woman, other that just girl, won, woman, other okay, just won the Man Booker Prize. Like that's um, a oh. great, great way of kind of framing female female experiences from the first person. I um, and actually to that point, um, this is uh, embarrassing, but like most of the books I read, and I've read like, quite a lot, quite a lot of books, quite a lot of fiction is male authors. And recently I read some books by female authors with a female like main character and the way that women write women in like their internal dialogue is like totally different. (laughs) It's so different. And I was like, Oh, of course it's different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. And and so that's why like, uh, yeah, you can read sort of like tips and strategies, but I, I think like you built, I really believe that like fiction helps to build empathy and particularly fiction from experiences and viewpoints that are different from your own. So, And maybe, and maybe that's like a good place for us to kind of like end it. Cause I think at the end of the day, empathy is always the word that I know you and I talk about a lot, right? Yeah. It's like at the end of the day, it's like, I think the best way that men can help is to like empathize um, with the challenges that women come through. Do you feel like that's a fair place, mm-hmm. fair thing to kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I think empathy is like a really good, kind of starting point definitely and that it's like a prerequisite (laughs) to to then (laughs) taking action so yeah Yeah, if you don't empathize you're not going to really kind of you're just going to be doing the action because you were told to kind of do the action right yeah i think if you're building something like your solid foundations for for change then um then empathy kind of needs to be a part of it (laughs) cool um thanks thanks yolanda i appreciate your time on a friday uh evening afternoon um (laughs) to tell me your like life story and talk about uncommon thank you so much for having me appreciate it that was my conversation with yolanda lee from uncommon she's working on such an important problem and if there's anyone that can make a difference it's her 
I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please subscribe to the Iterative Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to know what types of people or topics you want to hear from. Email me at hsukeen at iterative.pc. That's it. Have a good week, everyone.